I just want to review this idea of the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Uh, this, is, this doctrine is saying that because of Jesus's work as our high priest and as our king, he makes us a kingdom of priests, which, which means that we have access to God. We stand before him as priests. We relate to him. And um, there, there are four major implications from this doctrine that I mentioned last week. I just want to briefly review them. The first is that individual Christians have the, the ability and the right. I say right, really it's a privilege given to us by Jesus, but uh, the right to interpret scripture, not by private interpretation, but independent of a bishop or a pope. As such, an intermediary for interpretation is not needed. However, this does not downplay the inherent community nature of the scriptures. So what I'm trying to say there is that I, I don't, and Josh or Steve as pastors, don't have like some added, I don't know, priesthoodness that allows us to read the Bible and you can't read the Bible on your own. So don't do that during the week and we'll read it for you and we'll tell you what it means. The, the priesthood of the believer it, in combination with the giving of the Holy Spirit is a doctrine that says you should have the Bible and be able to read it and, and God allows you to understand it. He gives clarity and he, he works through that. And while it's a little bit of a caricature to look at other denominations and say they're not allowed to read the Bible without a bishop or pope, we kind of get the, the idea as we look back into pre-Reformation days is the Bible wasn't really given out in the language of the people. And we, we just want to say we should have the Bible. Uh, but our caution against that is that the scriptures are given to a community. And so we need to understand them as a community, as a church, not just by private interpretation. You know, this is my reading of the text because that, that isn't the priesthood of the believer. That's postmodern, isn't it? That's, that's a reader-oriented approach where whatever I think the text says is what it says. And then we chalk that up to the priesthood of the believer. But really that's just being part of this, this modern age that we're in. Um, and I, I think the reason I'm emphasizing this is that I think this is pretty common in, in Baptist churches, maybe especially, where there's this idea that it's, it's God and me and the Bible, and, and whatever I say this means is, is what it means. Well, we need to receive it as a community document. Second, individual Christians have direct access to God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. We, we don't, you don't need to come to a pastor to be able to talk to God. That, that's not how this thing works. Individual Christians don't need a priest to gain access to God, and they, they don't need a priest to hear from God. Um, however, again, we want to look at the whole doctrine of Scripture and also say that Christians are part of a community. That's the nature of the thing, and so we need each other. And I think I referenced a, a Bonhoeffer quote about Christ being stronger in the heart of the other person than he is in my own heart. And so we need each other to be able to point each other to Christ, to be able to help each other see things that we just don't see individually, and to affirm the forgiveness of Christ that he offers to each one of us. Third, individual Christians then have a responsibility to witness to unbelievers and believers about God. The, the role of the priest was not just to allow someone to enter into God's presence or offer a sacrifice, but really to bear God to that person, to witness God to that individual. And as priests, I think we have that same responsibility to bear Christ to the world. 
and there's something interesting about our identity as priests to be able to do that. We, we stand as the new temple, right? So we worship in spirit and truth. There's not a temple because the, the, the sacred place was transformed into a sacred person, Jesus, the true temple, and now we're sacred people. And so we should view ourselves in a way as access points to God for unbelievers. They, they can see God more truly and know God rightly because of their contact with you as a sacred person, as a temple, as a priest of God. And then finally, priesthood of believer then is more about service than status and more about responsibilities than rights. The emphasis is Godward. The limitation is to believers and the basis is the sacrifice of Christ and and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So when we talk about priesthood of believer, we don't want to talk about it as I have all these rights, but I have these responsibilities that ought to be carried out. And any questions about that? That's kind of the, the Baptist take, but it's beyond Baptist at this point in church history. But this is a, a sort of the way that we understand priesthood of believer. Okay, and for those who walked in, these notes you don't have. So uh, these are last week, I talked too long, and so we're just making up for it here. Okay, so, so I am trying to t- then apply this doctrine to our gathered corporate worship. So hopefully you can see really clearly this has implications for your daily worshiping lives, you know, as a gathered people. But it also has implications for us as a church when we gather together on Sundays. Um, beyond even church structure, right? So, so this helps us understand the roles of pastors and these sorts of things. And it, it keeps us from having a divide between the clergy and the laity, between the sacred and the secular. Uh, but as we talk about the priesthood of the believer, it naturally leads us to worship. And that's, that's what the author of Hebrews says, right? Therefore, since, is that Hebrews? I, I can't tell. But th- since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Uh, by it, we serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we, we respond as priests now with acts of worship. That's the appropriate response to the, this new identity as the kingdom of priests. So as we look at Hebrews and other places, this worship finds form in community acts of service, holiness, obedience, and suffering. But that worship is expressed most concretely in the gathered church, when the assembly gathers together. So I connected this earlier to our identity as image bearers of God. Well, it's true that we're all individually image bearers of God, but as we read that text, the image bearing finds its thickest form in community. He made them in his image, right? It's not he made one of them in his image and then a different one in his image, but together male and female. And that, I think, has implications for our discussion next week on men and women in worship. But certainly, we should understand that as priests, rooted in that original created image, there's this this natural element of community. And without that, we're sort of like shadowy priests, if that makes sense. But when we come together, we have a thicker fuller, more vibrant form. Does, does this make sense? Okay, and, and I think this undergirds the whole reason that we emphasize gathering together regularly. It's, it's because together it's more thick and full, and it's a more visible declaration of what Jesus has done. And that, that's why we can say all of life is worship. And, and this is 
where the Reformation was helpful and thinking after it, where, where they're saying, no, don't divide the sacred and the secular. All of life is worship, and so you, you don't need to think of worship only in terms of sitting in a service. But th- when you go to your job, you worship through that work. When, when you love your wife or your husband, you're worshiping God through that work. When you make a meal, when, when you change your kid's diaper, whatever it is, these are acts of worship before the Lord. Um, but then I think we started to pair that with this anti-institutional authoritarian cultural drift that then said, well, if I can worship on my own and all of life is worship and institutions and authority are bad, we don't need the church anymore. We don't need to gather. It's just me and God. And, and I think then added to that, you get people who have been in churches that have been genuinely abusive churches or, or really unhelpful. And so then you add some level of hurt there that drives even further this cultural river. And you, get, you end up with the idea that we don't need to gather as a church because I can worship God on my own. I think this is where uh, the... COVID shutdowns when our churches couldn't gather started to reveal what people actually thought about these doctrines because you, I, I mean, I don't want to be too critical of anybody in, in case anyone in here did this, but I, I was seeing people posting pictures of you know, my wife and I are doing the Lord's Supper together this morning. And it's like, well, that's a right of the church. That that belongs with the community. And, and then some conversations of COVID showed us that churches don't need to gather. And, and then there's a relegation of what it means to be a Christian to the private spiritual life and, and not to the gathered assembly. And I, I think that's something that we want to work against here to say that we need to gather for this priesthood to come to its most full and vibrant form. Any, any questions or comments on, on that? Mm-hmm. Because none of us possess all the gifts of the Spirit. None of us fully reflect the character of God mm-hmm. that, that, that we're called to, re- <clears throat> called to reflect. We need one another just like we're the body of Christ. Yeah. So that, that totally, again, just does the Yeah, exactly. I think that's those metaphors are really helpful in this. This bot, I think the body one in particular, if if you cut off part of like an appendage and just say, you know, I'm gonna take a few years away from the body, that thing's done. You know, like if if you cut off your thumb, like stick that thing in some ice and get over to the ER and get it sewed on, and I think it works. But wait a few weeks, it's it's too late. So I think if we can maybe press that metaphor, it, it helps us when we start feeling like, um, I, I don't feel like going to church, or I, I was hurt by someone in the assembly, so I'm just going to take some time away. Well, you need the whole body to heal those hurts, because if you disconnect from the body, you really disconnect from the head, who is Christ, and, and that's where our healing and hope really comes from. Okay, let's talk then. I, I list these as negative implications for corporate worship. And that's, I'm not saying the priesthood of the believer is negative for our worship. I'm just saying there are things that the priesthood of the believer doesn't mean for our worship that we might um, say that it means. First, the priesthood of the believer does not flatten out the gathered assembly such that there are no distinctive roles or offices. 
So in our polity, we have elder and deacon that are still there, even though we have a priesthood of believer, even though we say all Christians are priests before God. Uh, But then also there are roles um, within the church based on gifting abilities or desires, what Tim was just referencing there, that aren't flattened out because everyone is a priest of God. We don't function as priests in exactly the same way because God gifts us in very different ways. So there's not uh, pressure for everybody to get on a rotation to lead singing every Sunday. You know, like that, that just doesn't work. We all should participate in singing, but not everybody is going to be gifted or desire to stand behind the microphone and, and lead in that. Well, the priesthood of the believer doesn't demand everyone does that thing. Instead, the priesthood of the believer says everyone should do this thing, which is we all, we all sing together. And as we start to think about that, uh, we, we don't want to operate with an impulse of individualism where the individual needs to be heard based on kind of, you know, post-enlightenment philosophy. We want to do that based on the priesthood of the believer in that that changes the way we do a lot of things. So, so just in a practical way, we don't have the lights turned down when we're singing where you can't see each other and fog you know, coming out so you can't see anything really. And, and then uh, the music's so loud that you can't hear the person next to you. Well, that's because there's, a, there's a, an enriching of the priesthood of the believer when you gather. So why would we diminish what it means to gather by concealing each other from one another? As priests before God, we, we confess our sins to one another and to the Lord. We affirm forgiveness to one another from the Lord, and we sing to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, and, and all the rest. And so as we start to think about what it means to be a priesthood of the believer, it, it kind of channels the, the feel, I guess, of, of what we do in a corporate worship service to um, invite vulnerability, not invite kind of isolation or concealment. And, and that I know is tough if, you know, sometimes I hear from people who say, well, I have a, I'm tone deaf. I, I just can't sing. And I say, just sing. We, we need that. And, and if there are people who are bothered by that, they can sing louder. That's fine. You know, it, but, but it, the purpose is not to have a professional choir when we gather on Sunday. The purpose is for the voices of God's people to be lifted up. And I think this correlates to so many other things. Um, it correlates to gathered prayers. It ga- in, in everything we do, we're not looking for the perfect example of something. We're, we're saying, we're, you're going to grow and mature and develop in that. Like the first time you do anything, it's going to be bad unless you're one of those odd people who's good at everything. And so apply that to the, the life of the corporate worship as well. Um, sing, figure it out. You might not know this song. Well, stumble through it or listen, but, but grow in it. Um, and, and then as our opportunities for involvement, allow others to tell you, yeah, I, I think you have potential here. You should go for it. Or, hey, uh, buddy, you should not do that. Like, um, that's not where the Lord is gifting you. And uh, receive that in love, give that in love, and it will allow the church as a whole to be strengthened in the gifting of the Lord and, I think, in our corporate worship together. So, so that's just an example. I think we could spend a lot of time looking at every element of our service, but, but I just want to say that the general pulse of our service is going to be one that draws people in to participate, not one that creates a sort of, um, I don't know, presentation that you just receive or, or something like that.
Okay, then positive implications for worship. Um, though, though not everyone will operate in a particularized function. And by that, I just mean not everyone's going to be a song leader. Not everyone's going to read scripture. Not everybody is going to do something more visible sometimes, but everyone should be doing something. But some, sometimes, as Paul says in First uh, Corinthians, the, the um, members that are, you know, weaker deserve the greater honor, protection, covering. And, and so sometimes there's still involvement, but it's not going to be in that particularized role necessarily. Um, but, I, but I think the positive implication, as I was mentioning, is that the task of determining how one might serve in the corporate worship service or the church as, as a whole should not be made in isolation from the church. So it's not up to me to decide what my gifts are and what I'm going to do in the church. It's not up to you to decide, this is my thing, it's my gifting, and so therefore I'm going to do this. There's, there's supposed to be a communication in the body of affirming gifting and pushing, helping to develop and equip, and then also reeling someone in because sometimes we think we're, we're really gifted in something and we're not. And the, you know, the best examples are always when someone joins a church and they say, I'm a soloist. I want to get up there and sing a solo. And I don't know if you guys have seen this. Maybe it's not around, but there's this like... Um, guy playing the piano and singing some old, anyway, it's, it's awful, but he, he's like, great, well, do that at home, but someone else might be gifted to, to lead in that way. Do that as part of, you know, sing, but um, we, we just want to say that it's my, it's not my decision to say I'm gifted in this way, and I'm going to make this idea, I'm going to pursue this in isolation from the church. Uh, we, we operate within a community. Um, second, our identity as individual priests fuses with that of the larger body, such that we should bear Christ to one another and bear one another to Christ, seeking to submit to one another in service and love. And, and the way that I want to apply this is that the priesthood of the believer does not mean that I'm free to worship God only in the ways that feel comfortable to me. Or I, I, because I'm a priest of God, when I come to the gathered assembly, if there's something I don't like— I'm just not going to participate in it. That I think we could say, well, I'm a priest of God, so I get to determine how I'm going to worship. Well, in some way that's true. You know, there's a grain of truth there, but I think we can misunderstand these things and try to defend our practices of not participating in the life of the gathered church because it's not in, in my preferred way. Um, and, and again, the easiest examples are always just music and singing because that, that, for, that's, that involves us holistically. Like we're singing, we're hearing, we're usually like physically involved in some way. So it's, it's just more recognizable. But, but we need to say God has a larger palette for receiving worship than I have for, for making it. So, so I like to use this imagery of like a meal. You know, like there, there are people who eat food that I think is just disgusting. Like if someone is eating, I don't know, mushrooms, for example, I, I like to say I'm allergic to mushrooms, even though I'm not. I just don't want to find them in some food I'm eating. Well, that's fine in that way. But when you come to church, you can't say that's just not for me. So I'm, I'm not going to do it. I think we're called to expand and grow. And there may be some things that just never jive with you. And, and that's okay, but participate is, is part of the body, supporting those individuals who it does jive with, and also realizing that maybe there's something for me to learn from this. Maybe this is doing something to me that I can't even recognize or articulate right now. 
Um, so, so the example I want to use that happens in our service that, I, that could fit this category is our response to the reading of the scripture by saying, thanks be to God. Well, this regular response does something to us that I don't think we can articulate until after years of doing it. Um, in, in the same way that sitting down to pray before your meal with your kids every day, and it's like that doesn't jive with your kids probably or even with you sometimes, but it's doing something to you that you can't quite articulate until after years of reflection and doing it. Uh, so I would just encourage you to um, be patient and slow in deciding some aspect of corporate worship isn't for me, whether that's the way something is done or even an element as a whole, whether that's singing or pastoral prayers or scripture reading or preaching. Um, and believe it or not, there are people who think preaching shouldn't be part of a service. Well, well, there, there's something that happens there that, that maybe isn't appreciated in the moment, but when it's gone, the, the effects are seen. Third, our identity as a community of priests is nurtured through the rites of the church, that is, or the practices of the church, whatever you want to call them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is that decisive mark that marks someone off as God's people. It brings them in, into the assembly. And as Baptists, we say, if you haven't been baptized, you, we, we can't welcome you into the membership of this church. And that's reflective of the larger reality that baptism is what brings you into the new covenant. That, that's the new covenant marker. And, and so we say participate in that as observance or, or if you haven't been baptized and you would identify as a Christian, well, the grammar God gave you to say that, the language he gave you is baptism. So, so be baptized. Um, the Lord's Supper is the meal of the new covenant community and, and there should be regular participation in that as a priest of God. There's, there's something that you are permitted to do and welcome to do that the rest of the world doesn't get to do. That, that's significant. And if, when we start talking about the Lord's Supper as something we just tag on to service or something that is not really meaningful, I, I think we're starting to lose what Jesus wanted us to get. And um, I want to just emphasize one piece about the Lord's Supper, and that is that the Lord's Supper is intended to form and reform the body of Christ. That is, the Lord's Supper is intended to draw the church together as a community. Uh, we get this with meals as a whole. One, one of the reasons we encourage you to have people from church over for a meal is that meals, by virtue of what they are, are community-forming events. You build relationships over a meal. That's why we also encourage, if you're going to talk about, like, you know, really debatable things, do it over a meal because, because you're in a community-forming section and you can form community through diverse opinions and different ideas instead of on, you know, the Twitter or something where you're just a disembodied, you know, whatever idea floating out there. But the Lord's Supper is the like small packaged ritualized version of a meal with other believers that's intended to be with the gathered church. And I, I, um, well, first I should say, I always just reference the way that I grew up in some of these things. I appreciate the way I grew up and most of it I really hold to you, but there are certain things that I'm trying to point out that I'm assuming many of you grew up in the same way. And so maybe these will be helpful to point out other than Mary Jo and, and some, okay, maybe most of you didn't grow up in the same way I did, but I think these things are uh, important to say. Um, I, I grew up in a world where uh, the Lord's Supper was only ever a solemn event, and it was a very individualized, isolating sort of event. 
to where I never considered another person in our church, probably for most of my life when, when taking the Lord's Supper, because I was only considering, am I taking this in a worthy manner? And, and I understood that phrase, taking it in an unworthy manner to mean that there was, prob- if I could find any sin in my heart that I hadn't confessed somewhere between now and last month when I took the Lord's Supper or last quarter or whatever it was. And, and I just remember, I don't even think I thought about Jesus most of the time I took the Lord's Supper. But when Paul is talking about that, the, what's being defined as an unworthy manner is taking the Lord's Supper in a way that marginalizes those who are, according to the world's kind of status system lower than you on the totem pole. So, so there were individuals, the wealth rich elite, wealthy rich elites who didn't have to work all day were getting there. They were eating their fill. And, and there were other people who were going hungry, who, who were showing up probably after a long day of work and, and they weren't participating at all. And that's what Paul is condemning. He's condemning the Lord's Supper being a tool that divides the community. And, and I think there's probably a word of, of condemnation that needs to be given if we only think of the Lord's Supper as something that's about me and Jesus in my thimble and in my little piece of bread. Well, it's about the whole community. So, so I would encourage you, don't participate in the Lord's Supper if you're saying, I, I don't want Jesus right now. Well, well, even then, maybe you need to just repent and, and dwell on Jesus. But if you're hard-hearted against the Lord, I understand why that w- would be considered an unworthy manner of participation. But I think more often than not, we can tend to abstain from participating when Jesus would say, come and eat. I, I think that's what I'm trying to get across. In doing so, as we think of one another, will help form this church as a community. And so as COVID starts to continue to taper off, Lord willing here, when, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, slide in. So instead of the, the gaps between everybody, slide in and sit shoulder to shoulder and say, we're taking this as a community of faith together. And of course, that will feel awkward the first time you do it. But now that I've said it will feel awkward, you can say, yep, you said it would feel awkward, but we'll get over it. Now you have something to talk about afterwards. But but think of it as a community forming thing. That's one of the reasons we put a lot of emphasis on things like the Lord's Supper, because Jesus gave it to us for that purpose. Fourth, our identity as kingdom of priests, a holy temple in the body of Christ, emphasizes that our participation in worship is not ultimately about us as individuals or even us as a church, but really it's to direct worship to God, to respond to the gospel, to the praise of his glory. Okay, That brings me to the end of the priesthood of the believer. Any comments or questions there before we move on to something that uh, I think is good for us to think about? Okay. Oh, Tim? I just... Yeah. Yeah, we're individualistic and wherever community is, it's like fake community. Like, you know, you have the, I don't know, the coffee community, the hipster community, the whatever community, but they're actually not a community. And and so community doesn't really mean as much as it really should. Sometimes we we get the right community sort of in a work environment maybe. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. You know, Yeah. And, and when you get fired from that job, that community's over, right? How many of you 
had a job 15 years ago and still keep up with all of those coworkers? Well, I don't, you know. Um, so there, there's got to be something more than the, those shared things. I, I want to talk about children in corporate worship. And um, I, I will admit that my idea, th we sometimes talk about half-baked ideas on things. That's what my ideas are on this, because I think this is a problem that Baptist churches have that just don't go addressed. And it especially relates to corporate worship, so I think now is the time to address it. And the, the problem we have, I think, is one of the things that's uh, pushed many of my friends, at least, to become pedo-baptists. And there are worse things to do than that, but I, I think that we need to work through some of these concerning things. Even this week, as I was asking a friend what he thought about these ideas, he just said, this, this is like the topic that if I can't find good answers on, I think that I'm going to move from being a Baptist to a Presbyterian. And so I think, you know, it doesn't get talked about. And then people hear, you know, this objection to Christian Baptist, which I'm going to give in a second, and it makes total sense. Um, but it, there's, because they've never heard it, it's like, oh, this has been hidden from me the whole time, and I need to go to where they figured this out. And I, and I don't think that's good. So um, as this is more and more popular for other reasons too, I thought we should just take a few moments and address this issue or, and at least start thinking about it. Uh, so that way, as you encounter these things with your pedo-baptist friends, if you have them, you'll be able to say, I'm at least thinking about this, and, and I'm hopefully going to have better answers down the road. One of the challenges, that I just couldn't find any resources that talk about this like from the angle that I'm trying to look at it at. So if you come up with one, let me know. I'd, I'd like to use it. So unlike pedo-baptists who identify children as part of the covenant community by virtue of their birth into a Christian family and then by their baptism as an infant, uh, they, they really take on this identity as a priesthood of a believer, a covenant community member. Um, credo Baptists run into the sticky problem of what to do with children, both in terms of raising children in the home and in terms of how or even if a child should be involved in corporate worship. So for example, if a child is considered outside of the covenant people of God, does it make sense to keep telling that child to ask God to forgive them whenever they sin? And if they do ask God to forgive them whenever they sin, are they now a Christian? If they believe I did something wrong and I need God to forgive me, is that, is that, are we now saying these individuals are now Christians? If we aren't going to consider them as Christians, should they participate in, in corporate worship? I think throughout the Bible, you have these ideas about individuals who worship God, not from a pure heart, and they're going through the motions. And so the, the accusation leveraged against Baptists is that you're teaching pagans to operate without a pure heart and to offer false worship to God. Um, and then there, there, this works itself out in a number of questions, uh, but should, should children be permitted to sing in a children's choir, acting as a leading body in the worship of the church? So if a, if a group of cute but depraved and unregenerate kids are leading worship, is the whole thing just about them being cute and then therefore not actually worship? Should we take whole ministries like children's, make whole ministries for children's church, for a group of unbelievers, and then offer them the unholy communion of grape juice and animal crackers, where one kid goes hungry and the other one runs around with a full diaper and they're all screaming? Well, that's not the Lord's Supper that they take, right? So what are we doing with these individuals? It sort of, if we're pressed on it, leaves us in a, what I'm 
calling a theological conundrum. Because intuitively, we all know we should be doing this. We should be raising children. We should involve them in corporate worship. And in, on some level, it's even right to have a children's choir made up of individuals who are not part of the covenant community. I, I on page one there, put a footnote of a notable paedo-baptist who really throws down on, on Baptists for this. And this, this is a guy who I think um, is being read often, at least in my world. And so I, I just want to say we, we should hear these critiques and try to come up with a good answer. And I, I think the answer that the way that I want to pursue this comes up by asking the first question, what can children do for corporate worship? And then asking a second question, what can worship do for what can corporate worship do for children? Okay. And we have five minutes again. I, we need a clock in the back, I think. All right. So my, my solution to this is going to come in four steps. First, I think that we should treat children as if they are Christians until they demonstrate that they are not as they become independent enough to reject the faith of their parents. So, so note that I'm saying we treat them as if they're Christians, because I think when we start to break it down into theological terms, we still say that, that your infant is not a Christian. Your, your one-year-old and two-year-old are, are not Christians outside of a sociological identity. So they're, they're not theologically Christians or salvifically Christians, but they are sociologically Christians. They know no identity other than that of a Christian family. And instead of looking at this as a theological problem for us, I think we should look at that as a theological gift from God. And I think that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7:14 when he talks about the child of an unbeliever being marked out as holy. And I think what he's trying to say is by virtue of this child being in a Christian family, they're holy in terms of being set apart, not salvifically, but in a special way. And, and this is why an unbelieving spouse should, should or a, a spouse should, as long as the unbelieving spouse is willing to remain married to them, stay married to them be, because they're set apart in a special way. Again, not salvifically, but in, in a, a special way where they're able to have a connection to a priest of God. So this kind of connects back to what I was trying to talk about in priesthood of the believer. Now, that, that connection in that sanctification, that holiness, is not the kind that would lead us to baptize either the child or the unbelieving adult. But it is not to be ignored. That, that's a significant thing. And the way that it's ignored is by saying it's problematic for us to, to relate to, th to this child as if they're a Christian, to raise them up as children of, of the Lord. So number two then, although unregenerate children are not members of the new covenant community, we should raise up children in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is a, a direct command actually in the New Testament. And I think it's in there because there, there might be the question of, well, as this new covenant community, rather than this old covenant community, what do we do with our kids? Well, here's what you do with your kids. You raise them up in, in the training and instruction of the Lord for this is right. It's just right. It, it doesn't quite fit all the theological categories as clearly as you'd want in this new age and the creation of the new humanity. But by virtue of their connection to you, it is right for you to raise them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, we should work then 
to welcome children in corporate worship. This is part of the training and instruction of the Lord. Welcoming them to King Jesus is part of their upbringing in the training and instruction of the Lord. Um, some elements, I think, must be included, you know, sitting with you, singing, learning these things. The more particularized elements, such as a children's choir, are where questions start to get raised. Um, I'll, get, I'll get to that in uh, a moment here. But it's then, I think, as we do this, we draw on this Old Testament and New Testament family of God imagery, and, and we try to put our children in places where they, like the children of the members of the Old Covenant, ask their parents, what does that mean? And, and I think that's a good indication of your, your child is now starting to get to a place where they're, they're breaking out of just a mere sociological identity as Christians to asking the kind of questions that, that kind of allow them to enter into this theological identity as Christians. And, and it's hard to tell as someone who was raised up in a Christian home, the, the point of conversion is harder to know. And, and I think there's something good and right about us being able to say, I, I've never known a time when I haven't looked to Jesus in faith and repentance. I just don't know a time in my life when I haven't done that. Well, that begins with this sociological identity as Christian. And, and then I think as these questions start to be asked, you start to pick up on where this theological identity is being grabbed onto by that child themselves.